0: Hey, next on the T Nation, thanks for tuning into this very special segment of the show featuring Jay Haas. Jay won 27 times between the PGA Tour and the Champions Tour, finished in the top 10 in majors 14 times, and has won three majors so far out on the Champions Tour. Jay is a fantastic guy. So much fun. I couldn't, I can't tell you how much I enjoyed the amount of time that I got to spend with him earlier this week. Jay is a multi-award winner. He won the 1975 National Championship when he was at Wake Forest. He's also won the Payne Stewart Award. He won the Bob Jones Award. On top of all of that, we've got mutual friends that have put us together. Tom Percher, thank you so very much for connecting Jay and I. Rob Strano as well for cluing me in on what a great guy Jay Haas is. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this very special segment of the show. Folks, before we get started today, You've heard me talk about some great products that I saw at the PGA Merchandise Show. And another one that stood out to me is On Point Golf, game-changing, three-dimensional ball markers that science shows will help us see the line better when we're putting and therefore make more putts and lower our scores. See for yourself why Jim Furyk and I are big fans by going online to onpointgolf.us. Now next on the tee with me is Jay Haas. Let me give you some more detail about what he has done over the course of his career than I did just a moment ago. Jay is from St. Louis, Missouri, and played his college golf at Wake Forest from 1973 to 1976, where he was a four-time All-American, including a first-team All-American in 1975 and 76. He was the medalist at the 1975 National Championship after finishing tied for sixth in 1974 He helped the Demon Deacons to -to back-to-back national championships in 1974 and 75. He turned pro a little bit later on in 76. He won nine times out on the PGA Tour, including being in the top 10 14 times in majors. He's won 18 times so far on the Champions Tour, including three majors. He won the Senior PGA Championship twice in 2006 and 2008, plus the 2009 Senior Players Championship. He also won the Liberty Mutual Legends of Golf twice, and he took home the Charles Schwab Cup in 2006 and again in 2008. In 2005, Jay won the Payne Stewart Award for representing the character, charity, and sportsmanship that Payne showed. In 2006, Jay was presented with the Bob Jones Award, which is given annually in recognition of distinguished sportsmanship in the game of golf. In 2022, Jay became the oldest player to ever make the cut in a PGA Tour tournament, at 68, he and his son Bill both made the cut at the Zurich Classic and both finished tied for 36-12 to under par. Along with his 27 career wins, Jay has 34 second-place finishes, 152 top fives, and 278 top tens. Jay is the nephew of 1968 Masters champion Bob Golby. His brother Jerry, sons Bill and Jay Jr., plus his nephew Dillard Pruitt, also played out on the PGA Tour. I couldn't be more thrilled I get to have Jay with me this week here on Next on the T. Hey, Jay, thanks for coming on the show.
1: No, oh, it's my pleasure, Chris. That sounded like a uh, you made up a bunch of that stuff that you just read. <laughs> <laughs> I have not,
0: as a matter of fact. Good for you.
1: Holy cow. It's been a long time, I tell you. Uh, the game's been unbelievable to me. And uh, I've met so many wonderful people throughout the my time and the, the golf part of it. On the course was terrific, but uh, just everything around it has been amazing and uh, very blessed.
0: Jay, so going back to the beginning, the golf gene obviously runs strong in your family. Was it Mr. Gobi that got you started? Was it your parents? How did you first start playing the game?
1: You know, it it was uh, my Uncle Bob. You know, I was five years old, probably put a cut down club in my hand and gave me a couple tips and I don't really remember so much. I've seen pictures of me swinging and things like that, but I think the I even today I do a clinic and I talk about belt buckle to the target and up on my right toe. You know, that was I think the first lesson that I had and probably lasted me, you know, 5 or 6 years and then he maybe told me something else, but that was uh that was my introduction to the game and you know, Bob taught me so much about The swing itself, but mostly about shop making, say, and then how to be a pro, I think is, uh, his was his biggest, biggest, uh, asset that I, that I gleaned from, from him throughout the years. And, you know, he, he had his buddies were, you know, Gene Littler and Miller Barber and Mason Rudolph and in the era of Arnold and Jack and Billy Casper and, golly the names go on and so I got to hang with some of those guys and and see all sorts of personalities and all sorts of swings too you know there wasn't a cookie cutter back then Uh, you didn't have the uh, YouTube to look at the slow motion swings of all the greats so everybody kind of made their swing out of the dirt and I guess I was no different but that but yeah Bob taught me the game got me started My dad was a pretty good player when I was younger and he was the one who took me to play because Bob was playing tournament golf and didn't, I didn't get to see him a whole lot. But, uh, dad would take me out and hang my bag on the, on a umbrella of his pull cart, you know, of his bag. And I'd walk along and I can recall the first drives that I really would get into would go about a hundred, 105 yards. That was the benchmark was a hundred. The three-digit the three mark was uh, as far as I could hit it way back then, but some memories that I, I will never forget. Very, very uh, very fond.
0: Speaking of memories, you're from St. Louis, as is another great friend of this show who I believe you grew up with, and that's Rob Strano. You guys played at the same country club together. What do you remember about playing alongside of Rob?
1: Well, you know, Rob was about a half a generation, I guess, behind me, maybe even more than that, but uh, you know, Rob was always an, a student of the game, and it's no surprise that he's kind of gone into the teaching aspect of it. I guess, but uh, a beautiful swinger, and just kind of had a a, a knack to uh, to relate. I think as later in life, so much to his his students and things like that. And I've I've watched and listened to to Rob. You know, in front of a crowd, and, and how how well spoken he is, and how uh, adept he is at getting the message across. And it's really it's it's fun to see, and it's a, a tribute to the game and how there's uh, different pathways uh, for for everyone. But you know, Rob was a wonderful young player, and and has parlayed that into uh, where he is today. A very uh, a fine young man. I call him a young man. I'm seventy now, so everybody's younger than me, but uh, I've enjoyed seeing his progress along the way and catching up to him every now and then. I think the last time we did a little uh, thing in, in Belleville at St. Clair Country Club where we grew up, we did a little honoring of my Uncle Bob, and he got up there and was very eloquent. I wish I had the uh, skills that he has behind the microphone, but uh, always good to see Rob and, and, and listen to him and enjoy his progress throughout his game.
0: You played alongside Curtis Strange, David Thorne, another great friend of the show Bob Byman while you were there at Wake Forest. What are some of your favorite memories from your time at Wake?
1: Oh gosh, you know, we were we were a really good team. I tell you, we had five or six seven guys that were solid. Uh obviously Curtis was the best player. Uh the, the other ones of us were kind of 2A, B, C, D kind of that that ranking and uh but Curtis was a spectacular player i I say back in the day when sixty nine was a hell of a score. Curtis would turn in a sixty four or five every now and then uh I'd never seen a golfer quite like him. He was long, uh hit the ball high, just beautiful iron player uh and loved it uh He had the He had the drive that what it, is what it took to to become the great Hall of Fame player that he is. And you could see it kind of from the start. Maybe we didn't think Hall of Fame in, in those days, you know, in college days. But uh, looking back, he was uh, he was very consumed with the game. Uh, but at the same time, a fun-loving guy and kind of a life the party type guy. But we had a solid team, uh, again, from top to bottom. And we thought we were hot stuff. You know, we won a lot of tournaments. Uh, we won a couple NCAAs. Uh, you know, it's funny, through the years, uh, we run into people or, or somebody will say, hey, I, I, a team, I ran into a teammate of yours. And we'll, and I'll say, well, who was that? And they'll say a name and I'll go, you know, I don't know who that was because we played. But there was like two, a six of them, a seven some that we played, you know, a couple of groups every day. And we were pretty snobbish. We didn't let anybody else into that group. But, uh, you know, I just remember the road trips, uh, laughing. You know, at dinner, uh, I couldn't tell you any of my scores. And obviously I can, uh, I know the tournaments I won and things like that, but certain shots, uh, you know, that I lived and died for back then. Uh, again, it's more about the, the camaraderie of the team golf and all that. Uh, but gosh, those, you know, you think about uh, David Thor, he's gone on, he's played, uh, he played to a PGA tour golf and has settled into as a teaching pro and played up and down the Carolinas, up and down the East Coast, uh, still, still going strong, had a little battle with uh, tongue cancer and, and successfully got, got that. But uh, Bob Byman, I don't see him as much, but every now and then I'll be somewhere and there he'll pop up and a wonderful teacher and student of the game. And he was always the one who, uh, you know, reading Ben Hogan's Five Fundamentals and Dissecting the golf swing and everything, where most of us would just go out and play and not think about it too much. Bob was really uh, into positions and things like that. And, uh, it, you know, a different personality than, say, Curtis or myself. Uh, a guy named Billy Chapman from Charlotte, he was a wonderful player. I kind of lost track of Billy. Uh, Bill Argobrite was a great player, Kingsport, Tennessee, state amateur, and has had some real success. Uh, throughout the years, but we, uh, you know, we had a heck of a team and it was, uh, it was fun while we were there and carried on that tradition. And now my brother Jerry's a golf coach there. So the uh, Wake Forest is uh, in my blood and had son Bill go there. My daughter Fran went there. It, it's, uh, now Jerry's son is, is on the team. So it's, it's a, uh, it's a nice connection to have with the, uh, with a lot of fun people.
0: So you say Wake is in your blood. I know Mr. Golby went to the University of Illinois. How did it get in your blood? Was that Mr. Palmer to talk to you about it? Lanny Watkins, who was there just prior to you? Did they talk to you about it? How'd you get there?
1: Interesting story. Uh, Bob won the Heritage in 1970. He was the only player under par that year, I think four under. And lo and behold, Lanny Watkins finished second at even par. And Lanny was maybe a junior at Wake Forest at the time. And so Bob came home and I remember him telling me, now I'm probably a senior in high school, junior. No, I think I was a junior in high school. I was four years behind Lanny. And he comes home and he goes, you know, I think you ought to go to Wake Forest because if that's the kind of players they have, you need to go there and play against the best every day, practice against the best and, uh, you know, see where you are. And I said, okay. but <laughs> I didn't hadn't thought about you know i thought I didn't think two days ahead at, at that time, but hadn't certainly not thought about college, but also yeah I did think the fact that if I went, I was going to try to go somewhere where the weather was better than southern illinois, and so Bob knew Jesse Haddock was the coach at Wake, and we, we you know he talked to Jesse one one thing led to another, and I went down and visited with Bob and we met Coach haddock it was spring spring break so that no students were there. But I just kind of liked the school because it was relatively small. It's one of the smaller division one schools and campuses in the nation. And I was, uh, I'd been to the University of Illinois. We, we played our state high school there and kind of drove through the, the campus there. And it just seemed so vast to me. And so, you know, it was in amongst the city, I guess. And it just looked like somewhere where I would be lost. And also it was in cold weather. So uh, Wake just seemed like a natural fit to me. And then I got a letter from Arnold uh, that I still have in my, in my desk today. And just about uh, how we'd like to have you at Wake Forest and all that. Well, that was a done deal then. So uh, I just, you know, loved it from the start when I got down there, I thought it was a wonderful school just, just right for me until I had to start going to class. And then I realized I was out of my league a little bit, but, uh, righted the ship that way and managed four years and, um, and still have wonderful friends today from Curtis and I talk at least once a week, if not more. And, you know, guys that were on the golf team, but also people that I was in fraternity with, I still keep in touch with. And it was just a special place and a special time. And. Glad I was. Uh, I was chosen to go there, and you know, it was a successful story for me.
0: Jay, speaking of guys, you know Tom Perzer has become a wonderful friend over the last several years. He put us in touch with one another. Talk about competing against Tom and some of your favorite stories about those early days on the PGA Tour. Yeah,
1: you know, well, Tom was uh, wow. What a golf swing Tom had, and he probably gets tired of hearing that because. Every year there would be Golf Digest and Golf Magazine were the two publications that talked about golf and they would have a best swing on tour vote of the of the peers and Tom would win almost every year and I'd play practice rounds with him. He was just a fun guy to be around. He still is. Whenever we're we see each other we're trying to get to dinner and things like that, but uh he Tom was maybe a year or two older than me but uh we kind of had a good connection love to play practice rounds with Tom, love to get paired with Tom and try to emulate his golf swing. Obviously I couldn't big, strong guy hit it a mile and he was just a, you know, the whole package and, you know, people will say that they're surprised he didn't win more, but the fact is it's really hard to win golf tournament on the PGA tour. And, you know, Tom had a wonderful career for a long, long time. And, I, I guess I think of him as a wonderful player, but even a better friend. And we, we talk all the time. We text all the time. Our birthdays are pretty similar. And so we're, uh, you know, we pop up here and there at Pro Am outings, things like that. And it's like we never, never missed a beat. We're just r- right back at it laughing and having a great time. But, uh, he's a complete package for me. He's one of my best friends and always, uh, always enjoy being around Tom and, and, and trying to learn something from him. I, I feel like as a golfer, we never stop learning. I, at least I'm trying not to. I can't do physically what I did 40 years ago, 30 years ago, even 10 years ago. But I can try to learn uh, more about the game and things that I can take to the course, whether it be short game or putting or something like that. But uh always love playing with Tom and and trying to pick something up from his game.
0: Speaking of how hard it is to win out on, whether it's the PGA Tour or the Champions Tour, it's even harder to win majors. But you had top 10s in majors from 1977 to 2004. And to me, longevity is one of the marks of greatness. And you were in the thick of the majors for 27 years out there on the PGA Tour before winning three there on the Champions Tour. Do you embrace how great of an accomplishment that all is?
1: Oh, without question. It is so hard. I actually thought the U.S. Open was kind of my avenue to get a major. I thought Augusta was too long for me. I didn't play much overseas. Didn't play. I played in the uh, the British Open, as we called it, probably nine or ten times. And the PGA, I had a lot of good luck in the PGA. But I guess I felt like the Open was my forte because I hit a lot of fairways, hit a lot of greens. Wasn't a birdie machine, but uh, you didn't need to be so much in that, in that regard. And I had a good, I think I finished fifth my first year as a pro at Southern Hills. And I thought, man, this is, this is my, my game. This is where I belong. And, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to contend in this U S open and everything. Well, it obviously never happened, but it, it's just, I think what comes with playing well in, in a major is the outside. Source or the outside pressure, the the press. You're doing an interview, leading a tournament. And you're doing TV interview, a TV interview, and another interview, and you get up the next morning and you're in the paper and all that stuff. If uh, if I had to do it over again, I wouldn't have listened or wouldn't have read any of that stuff, you know. But I like seeing my name in print. I like to see it up on the top of the leaderboard, and so it was a good feeling. But I do think that knowing. What comes with winning a major is uh, you know how great that is. I think I wanted it too much, uh, probably like a lot of people you know it's just uh, it's a game changer, a life changer and then early on, Curtis won you know in 88 89 here's my best buddy, and he's winning u s open and man i've we're I've been passed by, so it, it's it's difficult, but you got to be on you know, only four times a year and you got to qualify for them too. You know, if you're not in the the Masters or or you got to qualify for the U.S. Open and uh, all that. So if you're not in those tournaments, obviously you don't have a chance to win. But I think that, uh, you know, when I was playing my best, I felt like I could do it and it just never happened. And finally did uh, at the Senior PGA in 2006 at Oak Tree. At uh, Man, it was, uh, I felt like I think I would have felt winning a, a PGA tour major as opposed to a champions tour major. I was, uh, uh, as jacked up as I've ever been as nervous as I've ever been. So it, uh, it was just my time. I got lucky. I made a nice putt here and there. And, uh, it's nice. Uh, was it ho- was nice holding that big trophy.
0: I want to go back to a couple of your experiences at the masters. When you, you mentioned that, then you, you battled Ben Crenshaw. And the 1995 Masters deep into the back nine on Sunday. And we all know the story of Harvey Penick passing away shortly before that tournament and how much that fueled Ben. But what was what was it like for you trying to battle it out with him on the back nine on Sunday?
1: Well, you know, I had a really good stretch in the mid 80s there. They changed from uh, Bermuda grass greens, overseeded Bermuda grass. And they went to bent in like 83 or 84 and eighty four, five and six, I finished maybe fourth, fifth, and sixth, or something like that. And the Augusta became kind of like a, um, a U.S. Open type course where pars were wonderful. And so I was a good two putter. You know, I would from I had a good lag game, and you know, I wasn't a streaky putter. I was a I was a good putter, never a great putter. It didn't seem like, and so I had some pretty good luck in those early days when they went to Bentgrass and then uh, I was starting to play well in the mid-90s and I shot 64 the first day in 95, led the led the tournament. And then I was actually, excuse me, the second day I shot, I think, 71-64 uh, and had a one-shot lead. And so there's where the press, the media, everything about leading the Masters uh, got into my head. And I was playing really well. I mean, I was as good as I've played. And so I didn't expect anything less when I went out on Saturday, but you know, as you know, there finishes at six thirty, seven o'clock, and so we're teeing off at two thirty or something like that, and got all morning to think about it. And I went out, and I just wasn't sharp. Uh, I double bogeyed number three. I, my ball moved on me right when I was getting ready to putt, so there was a penalty stroke there, and ended up making double on that third hole, which is a relatively easy hole when you know in the big scheme of things at at augusta uh end up shooting forty on the front nine uh but came back in thirty three and so had a you know had a chance on sunday and really really felt like I was in the thick of it and right there but ben you know the the stars were aligned and you know he had the incentive of uh harvey's memory and things like that but that was uh you know, my best chance really that I was right there from start to finish. Uh, I had a couple of decent top 10 finishes in majors, but I seemed to have good last rounds where I'd come from behind and I didn't have the pressure. Nobody was really interviewing me on Saturday afternoon. So I kind of would sneak in the back door and, and grab a top five or something like that. But, uh but that was one that I felt like got away. And, you know, we, earlier we talked about my uncle, Bob Golby and Bob had a uh, 1968 master champion. And I was up in the champions locker room many times. And just, you know, my main goal was to try to get a plaque on his locker right next to his and share that locker, uh, and have that connection with him throughout life and, uh, never happened, but that was, uh, that was one of my main goals on the, on the PGA tour. And that was, I always said people say Do you want to win the U.S. Open, the British or whatever, and I said I'd always wanted to win the Masters, mostly because of Bob.
0: Speaking of some of those times in the mid '80s and and legendary Masters tournaments alongside Ben Crenshaw, you and Ben were paired together in the final round in '86. Ended up finished tied for sixth that year, thanks to a that final round 67 that you shot, which was the second best round of the day next to Jack's. Right, you guys were about eight groups ahead of him. What was it like being out on the golf courses, all that was going on behind you?
1: Well, you know, I really learned something that week because Jack and I actually played on Saturday. I think we were both at maybe 143 or something like that. Maybe, I don't know, two under. I can't remember our scores so much through two rounds, but uh, I think Jack shot 70. I might've shot 71 uh, the third round and we were kind of out of it. You know, I mean, sure, it, it, a 64 and all that. I I wasn't thinking 64, <laughs> you know, Jack might've been, but I guess what I learned from that was you're, you're not out of it. You know, if you've got a, if there's holes left and you're kind of close, it's uh, you know, you put up the numbers, there's no defense, you know, and that's what he did on Sunday. But Augusta, as many people know, when you're there, you hear certain roars around the course and you know what hole the roar came from and pretty much who created that roar. And early on, on Sunday, there was no other roars like when Jack was was doing well. And then, you know, those manual Scoreboards that are on the golf course sprinkled out through the golf course. And you'd see Jack, you know, made a few birdies and then all of a sudden that little door would kind of go open. And then here comes another birdie, you know, on the seventh hole, wherever it was. It's, uh, it's pretty cool to watch that. And as a player, again, you know, exactly who did it, where they did it, uh, and, and what it meant and how close they were and all that stuff. So that was uh that was pretty cool, but it was great to Jackie was catting for him, and so we uh again we were we were playing okay on Saturday, but just kind of tread water a little bit but uh like i said the the thing I learned was uh, you're never out of it, and Jack had a great knack, and I don't know if it was a learned thing or if it was just instinct for him of playing every shot the same. Whether it was the first shot of the tournament, the last shot of the tournament, shooting 76 or 66 or whatever it was, he went through the same routine, uh, gave it the same effort every single time. And I don't think there's another player in history that has done that. You know, it's just uh, the way he, the way he approached everything. And so again, another, a great lesson uh, to watch uh, the greatest, if not the second greatest, one A, one B. He and Tiger. It's uh, it was it was a fun time to play with with him and uh, and see him at his best.
0: A little bit ago, you mentioned your first senior major victory at the 2006 PGA at Oak Tree there in Oklahoma. After all those close calls, what was it like for you? You're coming down the stretch. You end up winning in a playoff over Brad Bryan on the third playoff hole. Talk about, you mentioned nervous and all that sort of thing. What was it like for you coming down that stretch and then getting into the playoff, trying to close the deal and get that first major championship?
1: Yeah, I was a group ahead of Brad and the 18th hole, if you've never seen it at Oak Tree, is a huge bunker in the front of the green, maybe a 15-foot lip to it with railroad ties and just a, a, a very intimidating, visually intimidating hole. Winds blowing pretty good, and I'd struggled on that hole throughout the week, but hit a beautiful five iron second shot to about 15 or 18 feet. Kind of had a big breaking left to right putt. And I was looking at the scoreboard. I was, uh, I was tied with Brad. Uh, maybe he had 17 to play, and I, I made this putt, the prettiest putt I've ever hit, I think. And I was, uh, I won't say I f- guaranteed I was going to win, but when I when that putt went in, and I was thinking about the, you know, getting the hardest hole on the course, if not one of the hardest in America, and how is Brad going to make a birdie to tie me and all that stuff? And damn if he didn't do it. And uh, I remember we were signing our scorecards, and I, it was whoever I was playing with, and I'm I'm trying to come up with. Who kind of leaned into me who, who, as we were signing. He says, congratulations. He says, no way uh, Brad's going to bury that last hole. Well, sure enough, he did. Uh, and, and I guess I, at the time I thought, you know, you know, I can't let this go. I've got to, I've got to have this and this is my, uh, my destiny and all that, but it didn't look good. I, I made a nice, uh, nice par save to, to win. Brad missed a fairly short putt that would have kept the playoff going. It was just uh, unbelievable relief, but I don't think I'll ever forget the putt I made on the 72nd hole that ultimately got me into the uh, into the playoff. It was, you know, you know, as a golfer, any athlete, I guess when you have to do it and you do, there's just not a better feeling in the world. And so it kind of gave me chills to do it at that moment. Thinking about man, there's this is what Jack did his whole career, and Tom Watson and Ben and all the all the the players that have won multiple multiple majors. So uh, it was uh, it was a p- pretty cool feeling to have be able to do it when I had to. It was uh, nothing like it.
0: You win that tournament again two years later in 2008, this time at Oak Hill Country Club up in Rochester, New York. This time you beat Bernard Langer by a stroke, and Langer's as tough as it gets on the Champions Tour. Talk about battling it out for a second major against him.
1: Yeah, I didn't I didn't defend very well at Canterbury in Cleveland the next year in 07. Finished maybe 10th or something like that, but just didn't have it. And then went to Oak Hill and... I have a, I have a pretty good connection with Oak Hill, uh, Billy Harmon's my best friend and my teacher and caddied for me for 10 years on the PGA Tour, uh and a great friend of Tom Percher as well and Billy worked for his brother Craig Harmon who was the pro there for 30 some years. And so I'd been up there quite a bit to uh, play casual rounds with Billy and Craig there, played in the PGA, played in the Open there with Curtis one uh, just uh, had a lot of golf experiences there at Oak Hill and probably the uh, one of the indirect ways that I had some pretty good success on the champions tour at the Ryder cup there in uh, 95. Uh, we had a pretty good lead going into Sunday and I was paired with Philip Walt from Ireland and uh it, I was in the I was in the 11th match. Phil was in the 12th match. Uh Phil Mickelson and it looked like by the time we got to our matches the, the matches were going to be over. Well, as as things played out, Curtis maybe lost the last hole, Brad Faxon lost the last hole. Uh different guys lost the last hole or didn't make a putt and all of a sudden now it's down to Phil and I. Well, Phil dusted his match. He won like four and three or something like that. So now I'm the last match on the course, and I flat out choked. I was the most nervous I've ever been. I had won 16 and 17 to get to number 18, one down. If I win number 18, we have the match. Uh, we have the entire matches, and we retain the cup because we had it the year before, two years prior. And I hit a terrible drive, terrible second, terrible third. You know, I had a six for bogey. So basically, Philip, all he had to do was make bogey, and that's what he did. And uh, probably the lowest point of my of my career. And so Billy Harmon was caddying for me at the time. And later on, he said, "You know, you know, I don't mean to bring up the bad time or whatever." He says, "But you couldn't hit a." a worse drive. If you tried, if you were just in a driving contest, and you took a swing like you were in a driving contest, you would hit a better drive than trying to be too perfect and all that. He wasn't being critical. and And I agreed, you know, I was just trying to hit this perfect drive in the fairway and steer it out there. And so if I I said, you know, from now on, if I ever get chances to win tournaments again, I'm just going to let it rip, and I'm going to take a swing like I'm in a driving contest on tight holes and last hole things like that. And that was kind of how I got going on the Champions Tour. Well, lo and behold, in 2008, I come to the 18th hole with a one shot lead on Bernhard at Oak Hill, the site of my biggest choke. And I said, well, I'm thinking to myself, here you go. I kind of had a chuckle, just saying here's your opportunity at the same place and i said come on just don't don't waste time just get up there and swing as hard as you can swing and see what happens and i hit the prettiest hard cut down the left side of the fairway and i knocked it on the green two putted and won the tournament so that uh spurred me on for the next few years too i just felt like uh, this that's the way to play and that's what i noticed as you look back as i look back on playing with tom watson or uh, Hale Irwin or or guys that won a lot of tournaments, they didn't play scared. They tried to hit a good shot as opposed to not hitting a bad shot. And I think most of my career, I was the guy trying not to hit a bad one rather than trying to hit a good one or a great one at the right time. And I learned a lot uh, it, it, in that regard, and it, it helped me uh, win more tournaments on the champions tour than I won on the PGA tour. And I think it was just kind of an attitude change. I started putting a little bit better, but, uh, that was a, a memory that'll stick with me uh, for, for a long time. Sorry to be to get too detailed there, but no. it's just, uh, uh, pretty ironic that, the, that those two shots happened at the same hole in, in different decades. But, uh, there's a lot of, uh, A lot of pressure on each one. One time I handled it, the next time I did.
0: So let's take that a step further, because speaking of hitting a great one at the right time, a year later in 09 at the senior players, you get your third senior major championship. This time you're trailing Tom Watson by five strokes going into the final round. You come back, shoot 64, including a birdie on the final hole to win by one. So you did it again that year. That's fantastic
1: that was was probably one of my best ball striking weeks of the year of my career. Uh Baltimore Country Club has some real severe greens. Uh got to stay below the greens. You got to put your irons in the proper spot on the greens and uh I was kind of right there all week wasn't putting great but just uh, it, again tee to green I was as good as I've ever been I think. And I got to the 17th hole, 17 and 18 are normally number one and number two. And one's a tough par four and uh, with the original first hole. And then the original second hole is a par five. And they converted that one to a par four and made of number 17 and 18 because they were close to the clubhouse. Well, uh, I hit a hit a nice shot in on 17 and made about a 15 footer for birdie. And at that time, I. I I knew I was right there, but at the same time, Tom doesn't usually spit the bit. You know, he's going to close the deal, and I'm just trying to, you know, put as much pressure as possible on him. And the the 18th hole there is a kind of a hogback, turtleback fairway, whatever you would say, is so hard to hit. And I was 0 for 3 going into the last round there. And if you don't hit the fairway, the rough was such as hard to hit the second shot onto the green up this hill. And I did hit the fairway and I hit a beautiful iron that uh, took the slope and went down to about two and a half feet. And I shook this thing in and then Tom came there and needed a birdie uh, to tie me. And he drove in the rough, couldn't reach the green. He probably had a 40 or 50 yard blind shot up over the green. Apparently it went right by the hole and about five or six feet by, uh, but he made that to, uh, to, you know, let me win by a shot. But uh, that was that was a, a memory, too, to to beat the great Tom Watson. When I first started playing, uh, Tom was just starting kind of his heyday, his eight- or ten-year stretch there where he was – I'm telling you, if you played late on Thursday and he played early, his name was on the leaderboard. Every time I got out to the course, it seemed like every single week that he was playing, Tom was four, five, six under on the first round. Every single time he teed it up. So – he was the man. And uh, and I guess I never grew out of that opinion of him. And so to uh, to nip him by a shot in a major tournament was uh, was certainly one of my great highlights uh, of my career. You won the Charles Schwab
0: Cup in 2006 and 2008. How much did winning that season long event and not doing it once, but doing it twice validate for you that you belong mentioned among the greatest players of all time?
1: Well, I w- I won't ever say that, but it did. Uh, the validation of winning a season-long points race is just that—that that you were consistent enough throughout the course of the year. That every time you teed it up, uh, you know, and I I felt like at that stage I was playing some of my best golf and uh, very confident, uh, putting well, doing most everything well, and so I felt like I could, I was going to be up there by the lead almost every time, and with a few breaks, I might could get the win and all that certainly would never uh, consider myself in amongst the greats and all that. I played with many of them, but, uh, but again, winning a season long points race, uh, you know, nowadays is the FedEx cup and we still have the Schwab cup on the champions tour. So to, uh, to end up with that crown is, is pretty special. It it just uh, shows your consistency throughout the course of the year. And, you know, I had a few years where I won, multiple events only only a couple actually I won in 81 and 82 I won twice each year but the rest of the time it was pretty uh pretty cold actually so uh, a, a little streaky back then but to begin to have that consistency and have a chance to do that was something that that means a lot to me and uh Lauren Roberts was kind of the main guy back then that uh Lauren won twice I think he might have won. In, uh, seven and nine or five and seven or something like that. Opposite times of me. Hale had won it uh, three times, I think. Uh, so some of the best players on the PGA tour champions had, uh, put their name on that trophy. So I was, I was pretty proud of that.
0: Jay, I've said this to several of your peers. I think the Charles Schwab cup winner deserves a spot in the masters and winning tournaments and majors on the champions tour should be considered. When people are thinking about players that deserve to be inducted into the World Golf Hall of Fame. Am I wrong about that?
1: Well, I, uh, you know, I guess when I was playing as a younger player, I would say no. Uh, and I still probably lean that way. You know, there's just a, there's quite a bit of difference. Uh, I do. I do think that, uh, you know, the, the media goes a little bit uh, further uh, when it comes to a PGA tour champions major, but, you know, we get into the, the PGA uh, senior championship. We get an exemption into the PGA tournament the following year and the, the players championship, the same thing. The senior players gets into the players championship the following year. And I think the senior open champion gets, does the same. Uh, senior British open champion gets the same. So that's pretty cool to earn our way into those majors. Uh, by winning the senior majors but as far as being recognized uh you know you look at a guy like Steve Stricker who just dominated this year and has dominated pretty much i think he's won 16 or 17 tournaments already and he's kind of a part-time player out there you know he he played uh very sparingly from 51 to 50 to 53 or four, say. And then he was a captain of the President's Cup team and Ryder Cup team and all that. And that takes a great deal of time. So he didn't really play as much as most uh, 50 and older guys do. But uh, this year he put it all together. And heck, he, I don't know how many tournaments he played, but he didn't play, you know, probably four or five, six less than some of the other guys did up there. But now do you consider, you know, Steve, there's a great example. He won, I think he won 11 times maybe on the PGA tour. Uh, and, and now he's won six or seven uh, senior majors. Is, is that a, is he a Hall of Famer? Uh, you know, you think, let's go back to Uncle Bob. He only won one major, but he finished second in two others by a stroke. Uh, you know, it's just hard to, uh, hard to say that uh champions tour golfers, what they did strictly on that, uh, would, would warrant, you know, maybe as an addition to it. Yes. But, uh, I don't know. I, my vote would be no, but I'm cutting my own throat there, but, uh, <laughs> it, regardless, it won't change my life. You know, it, it, uh, that would be great to be recognized and all that, but there are many in front of me who deserve it. Uh, ahead of me. So, uh, again, I, I, my hall of fame is my 12 grandkids that we had Christmas with over here at the house. It's nothing like that. So, uh, it's been, it was a great, great ride golf wise, but, uh, no, no regrets, no, uh, no wishes that I'd done this, that, or the other. It just, uh, I did the best I could.
0: Jay, just a couple more before I let you go. And you mentioned the Ryder Cup earlier and the pressure that comes along with playing in one. You were a part of three Ryder Cup teams. I want to focus on the victorious one in 1983, your first appearance. Jack Nicklaus was the captain that year, was held at PGA National in his backyard. What do you remember about the first time you teed it up at a Ryder Cup?
1: Some some things that I'll never forget. Uh, Tom Watson and I played as partners my first match. And that was a real thrill for me because, like I said, he was the man right then. Uh, 1983 was kind of in his wheelhouse. You know, I think maybe, I don't know what his first year, the first win was maybe 76 or seven Western open, maybe something like that. He had a hard time closing the deal. Uh, as I look back, but, uh, by the time I was playing decently on the PGA tour, he was, uh, seemingly winning every other week. So to have him as a partner, that was very cool. And we beat, I want to say we beat Woosdom and Langer. Uh, not 100% sure who it was, but we beat them two and one. And we were on 17. I had about a 12-footer for birdie. And I think Woosdom maybe 18 feet. Uh, we were two up. And he well, we wanted to close the deal. And Tom came up to me. I was kind of by myself. And he goes, he's going to make this one. So be ready. He's going to make it. You, you, you need to make yours to win this match. And so I I thought to myself, yeah, sure, he's going to make it. Well, sure enough, he makes his putt. But that little pep talk before that putt was made uh, really helped me because I settled in and I made the putt. And we won two and one. So uh, that's something I'll forget. Curtis and I paired the second day, uh, basically begged jack to put us together well we were two Ryder cup rookies that year uh, and we played but we played countless rounds together we knew each other's games we trusted each other we we, you know we didn't lose much in college Uh, we thought we were pretty hot stuff and so put us out there well we got out there and we we won three and two i think uh a match so that was very cool uh played with Gil Morgan in another match and we tied Seve and whoever he was paired with. Seve knocked it on 18 and two that none of us could do except for Seve. Uh, we were one up going the last hole. And I was playing really well and you know, I couldn't match his birdie. I think Gil might have hit it in the water, second shot. But, uh, anyway, that those are the things I remember pouring champagne on Jack's head in the room, you know, celebrating, uh, you know, Lanny hitting it close in the last hole there to to win that hole and have his match and kind of solidify the victory. Uh, I saw a picture the other day of me hitting, and I'm not sure what hole it is. I want to say it's the ninth hole uh, from the right side of the fairway, looking beyond the ninth fairway. There's a there's a lake, a pond, and then the fairway, and then some trees and can't really be sure where it was, what hole it was on. But Gil is in the picture, and Sevy's in the picture, and the official, and maybe our caddies, and Matt, those are the only people in this picture. And my point is, <laughs> there was hardly anyone there watching it. I bet for the week, there weren't six or 8,000 people out there for the entire week to watch the Ryder Cup. And there was, if you look back, and I'm pretty sure you can Google this and uh, do your own research on it, but I'm pretty sure on Saturday, the matches on Saturday, there was an hour of tape delay telecasts on Saturday afternoon. And on Sunday, I think there was an hour and a half of tape delay telecasts for, uh, for the Ryder Cup, if you can imagine that in today's world uh hell there's an hour and a half of uh watching the caddies eat almost you know sit in <laughs> the day but it was just that picture kind of told me the story of and i've told people there was hardly anyone there uh it was uh it, but i didn't know any better we didn't know any better and we didn't know the the war on the shore was going to happen at kiowa and the Jack was going to lose at Mirfield Village and all that stuff. We were still on the roll of never being beaten and all that stuff. And it was close, but shoot, the outcome was what we expected. So we didn't think anything of it. But, uh, you know, having Jack as a captain who, you know, in 83, well, he only won the Masters in 86. So he was still – he should have been on a team. Uh, but there weren't picks back then. It was just a top 12. So uh, it, that – uh you know he hadn't played enough, and I think he'd been on—I don't know how many teams anyway. So it wasn't like it was the main goal. But in today's game, uh, and and since since eighty five or eighty seven, uh, everybody wants to be on that team and do whatever they can to to get on that team. But it was uh, uh, those were those were some of the things that I'd talked about uh, for years to come. Uh, we had we had a the teams got together for dinner at Jack's house. Jack and Barbara's house, uh, very, very casual, uh, right there on the water. If you've ever been to Jack's house, it's right there on the bay and uh, tennis court right there. And I can remember watching Michael, their youngest, climb the fence of the tennis court. <laughs> He's five years old or something like that. Uh, just a very, very cool experience there. Going into Jack's office, Jack only had like three pieces of memorabilia. And this might have been later than that, but he's got a picture that's maybe, uh, four feet wide, three feet tall. And it's of every greatest player of most every sport is in this picture live. They were in tuxedos. And I don't know if you've ever seen that picture. Uh, Jack and maybe Arnold and maybe Tiger and maybe uh Pele and maybe Bill Russell and uh Gretzky. I don't know. You you name a be- the best players of the last forty or fifty years in every sport. And there's about 20 of them in this picture in Tuxedo's. And that's in his office. I think that's a pretty cool, cool picture. And then maybe uh a a British Open replica trophy is in there. And that's kind of it. it. Not a bunch of stuff hanging on walls and plates and, uh, you know, plaques and things like that is very sparsely decorated from uh, all of his stuff that he won. But he probably gave most of it away, and it didn't mean much to him other than just to have his name next to that victory. So, uh, but that was, kind of got off track there, but those were my, my 83 memories.
0: Jay, you mentioned about how nowadays everyone wants to get on whether it's the U.S. team or the European team, to play in a Ryder Cup? Well, this year, we heard about some guys squawking about wanting to get paid to be there. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, you know, I've been asked a lot about that. And honestly, I will tell you this. If you said, if you gave me two pieces of paper and I picked one and it said, argue for getting paid, I think I could do that very well. And if the other one was argue against getting paid, I could do that just as well and make good arguments on both sides. Now that's it, it, kind of strange coming from a seventy-year-old guy who we didn't get paid to do any of that stuff. We got a stipend, a small stipend, and all that, but uh, you, you know, we weren't—we uh, didn't have the perks that they have in today's world and trying to please these guys. But I will say this: here's a here's a, a thought that someone, Billy Harmon, actually told me this. He was talking to a friend of his and he goes imagine if you were putting on a concert and all the top acts in the in the music world were were coming so let's think live aid and so that was raising money for the uh, for world hunger is, is that correct sounds right imagine that those acts were on there for not for free they were doing that for free and not getting paid for it, except the organizers got all the money. So that's kind of what happens in the Ryder Cup. The Ryder Cup funds the PGA of America. Uh, it funds the European PGA tour, uh, a great deal. And so, you know, it, so here's my argument for getting more money, for getting paid, uh, is, here these are the entertainers these are the acts that you're putting on stage and they're doing it because it's for their country now that's a great reason but it's almost like quietly through the years they should have been kind of kind of giving them a little bit more each time you get a stipend you get I don't know what it what it is up to now uh but it 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 was it was a fine you know it wasn't gonna make you rich, but it was it covered way more than your expenses but imagine if they'd bump that up a little bit more each time without saying a whole lot and just doing it being proactive rather than if you remember right in i want to say it was uh ninety nine maybe or maybe when a when a uh p g a was at Medina or something. And Mark O'Meara and maybe David Duvall and got, got into hot water for complaining that they weren't getting paid to, to go. And they were the ones that kind of fell on the sword there. I think they were just voicing what a lot of players had said. So you're talking 25 years ago and they got just crucified for that. Mark did for sure because he was maybe the one of the most outspoken ones. But so this has been going on for quite a while. Now, uh, all that being said, to be in that room with those other 11 players, I don't think there's any greater honor in golf, uh, certainly in team golf. Uh, to be one of those 12 guys is pretty darn special and uh, you know, looking around that room for me personally, when I would look around that room and see Ben Crenshaw sitting over here and Tom Watson, and Curtis Strange and Brad Faxon, uh, you know, Lanny was the captain in 95. Uh, it's just to uh, Phil, uh, you know, a couple times, boy, it was pretty cool to be, uh, to be on the same team as those guys and be one of those guys that went out there. the, the change, if I got a couple more minutes here, the, the the huge change that I noticed in 83, like I said, there was hardly anyone there. I played 12 years later at 95 at Oak Hill. And on Tuesday at Oak Hill, we left the locker room and there were 25,000 people for a practice round on Tuesday. There was a chain link fence leading from the, the door, the locker room to the to the practice range. And the fans were hanging over this chain link fence, screaming, go USA, 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 chanting it, screaming, go Jay. The hair stood up on the back of my neck and I went, Oh my God, this is, this is a little different than I remember 12 years ago. So, uh, that's, uh, that's why the guys I think want to play, uh, year in and year out to be one of those guys who's, uh, who's hitting those shots and trying to win that cup.
0: Jay, I know, um, I got the, the privilege of uh, watching you play when you were here in Atlanta last year at the Mitsubishi Electric Classic at TPC Sugarloaf. Enjoyed seeing you on the practice range and, and watching you play while you were here. Looking ahead to 24, are you going to play a full schedule? Or are you going to be back?
1: I'm going to try to. I had back surgery uh, September 1st, and it wasn't major, but it wasn't minor either. It, uh, it was pretty... It, Tense, I guess I'd say uh, I came through with flying colors and my pain that I had, uh, the everyday chronic pain is gone. Uh, golf swing pain is about gone. I'd say I'm about 85 uh, percent good to go and I'm I'm feeling better all the time. But I plan to play uh, hopefully 10, 12, 14 events. Kind of how I play will determine a little bit of that. and. I you know hopefully I'll play well enough to warrant still being out there and I don't want to finish in the bottom ten bottom six you know every single week if I do a little of that early on then I'll probably say see you later but uh, I don't want to just go just to be playing I want to play be somewhat competitive and uh, and enjoy it to the sense that I feel like I'm getting a little bit better as the year goes on so we'll see I'm playing in the uh, tournament at Hualalai, the, uh, Mitsubishi event at, uh, in, in Hawaii, which is the 18th, 19th, 20th of next month. So I'm uh, looking forward to that and seeing where my game is and then go from there. Uh, we start off pretty slowly. We have only two tournaments in February, two in March. So if, uh, you know, by the end of March, if I'm feeling pretty good, I'll be anxious to play uh, as much as possible. and pick my spots a little bit. There's certainly courses that I can't compete on anymore. They're too long for me, but there are certain ones that uh, my game suits a little bit better than others. So, uh, and then, you know, hopefully see Tom somewhere along the way and Curtis and some of these guys that I've uh, grown to know through the years and enjoy the company of. So looking forward to that.
0: Jay, how can our listeners stay up to date with what you're doing, whether it's following you online or it's on social media?
1: Well, I will be honest with you at 70 my social media is uh, pretty lacking but uh you know PGA com is uh they do a great job for us and I, I it's funny uh, you know the the uh pip or whatever they call it that the PGA tour guys have been involved in and how much they get for being you know, uh, uh, socially aware, more people are, you know, they're tweeting more stuff and all that stuff. I just don't get all that. And, and frankly, I don't want people to know what I'm doing when I'm home. I want to be home. I want to be with my family. I've traveled, you know, for the greater part of my life and been on the road and, uh, I'm, I'm enjoying being home when I am home. And when I am home, I enjoy being with my grandkids and kids and not saying here, here I am at, uh, you know, California pizza kitchen enjoying some dinner with my three grandkids, you know, so, uh, that doesn't, uh, do much for me. When I see somebody post that, I just, I just kind of swipe it and say, tell me something I don't know. So anyway, (laughs) sorry to say, you're not going to see me on, uh, twitter and all that stuff and uh, i have some opinions obviously but uh you know who cares what i think so that's kind of what i think about most people that share all that stuff
0: well jay it has been a huge thrill for me to get to spend some time with you today i know we've just barely scratched the surface of your great career i hope we get the privilege of spending time with you again sometime in the future
1: i'd love to do it chris and thanks for being a great host and Hopefully our paths will cross soon. Uh, give my best to Tom, if you see him and uh, see you maybe in Atlanta again this year. Perfect.
0: Thank you, Jay. Happy new year to you and your family. We'll catch up soon.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Jay. That was the great Jay Haas folks. Is it any wonder that he comes so highly recommended as a, just a wonderful guy from people like Tom Percher and Rob Strano. Thanks to both of those guys for helping to set this up. And again, A guy who won 27 times between the two tours, three senior majors, won the Payne Stewart Award for his character, charity, and sportsmanship, won again the Bob Jones Award. These things all should add up to a World Golf Hall of Fame career. You don't win that many times on those two tours. You don't end up beating the same guys that you beat on the regular tour when you get out to the Champions Tour. Win three majors. Also win the Liberty Mutual Legends of Golf two times without it all adding up to being a very special career, one that should get you in the Hall of Fame. I don't care that he won his three majors out on the Champions Tour. He was top 10 14 times in majors on the regular tour, graduated to the Champions Tour, kept it going, and then won out there. A fantastic guy, a fantastic career, and somebody that I'm very much looking forward to getting to know more as we get into 2024. All right, my friends, it is time for me to put a bow on this very special segment of Next on the T and officially now close out 2023 in season number 10 of the show. We'll be back with you here in a couple of days. Tuesday, January 2nd, we'll record episode number one of 2024 and season number 11. And we're going to do that with Tom Patrick, Megan Francella, Dr. Bob Winters and Jane Crafter. So I hope you'll come back and join me as we kick off a brand new season of Next on the T. But as always, I can't thank you enough for making us a part of your regular golf content. Until then, hit them straight, my friends.